Hi, it's Charles here from the GHFC, welcoming you to the GHFC podcast number five. Uh, It's entitled My Story of Living with Depression. Uh, So as I say, it's Charles Hill. I'm founder of my own not-for-profit mental health well-being project known as the Glass Half Full community or more simply the GHFC where I provide an online presence in support of all current mainstream mental health and well-being organizations such as Black Dog Institute, Beyond Blue, Gotcha for Life, Are You OK and Lifeline sharing their latest innovations and technological advances with our readership. The GHFC itself evolved during 2017 as a result of my own experiences uh, with anxiety and depression, manifesting them themselves in debilitating circumstances in 2004, 2011 and 2017. So the reason I'm sharing my story of living with depression by podcast is to try and make a difference but by sharing the life lessons I have learned in embracing the fact that I have a mental illness that I can now recognize the triggers and the barriers, that I am aware of all the coping strategies and support that are available in abundance, to reassure you that it is okay to feel mentally unwell, to reassure you that it is okay to seek professional support from your GP uh, and a referred psychologist, that it is okay to take prescribed medication and combine it with tried and tested cognitive behavior exercises and to reassure you that if all these steps appear too daunting that it is okay to google established organizations such as black dog institute beyond blue gotcha for life are you okay and lifeline and contact them for advice and support but in short i define how i live uh, with my mental illness as opposed to my mental illness defining me. So my story with anxiety and depression began when I was pursuing a career in sales alongside the Australian arm of a very successful global company. Now please let me assure you my story is not one of sour grapes or apportioning blame towards my employer, far from it, for they were way ahead of their time in terms of looking after their people regarding both physical and mental health. I first knew that something was not quite right when one Thursday morning in the spring of 2004, I was sat at my desk and I froze, as in I just could not function. The notes on my computer made no sense. The files open on my desk were all gobbledygook. I was in a state of paralysis, 100% incapacitated. Now, fortunately, the company had a culture of support with a realistic open-door policy to which I immediately availed myself, sheepishly walking into the office of our Head of Human Resources. And she could see I was not my usual bullish, salesy type. In fact, far from it, asking me to sit down, to breathe, and then start talking. Well, I did the first two with relief, but then with acute embarrassment burst into floods of tears. From this point on, the company went into overdrive, involving my boss, who immediately allocated resources and time to assist with my recovery. To this day, I am very grateful for their appropriate and very positive response. Within 24 hours, I had spent time with my GP, 
who recognised the symptoms of anxiety, advising that I had experienced a breakdown to the point of being diagnosed as clinically depressed. He let me know that he would be referring me to a psychologist, with the initial consultations being covered by a Medicare rebate, as well as prescribing suitable medication and an additional four weeks leave of absence from my workplace. From then on, it was a matter of time. My GP explained how the meds would counteract the chemical imbalance in my brain, reducing the potential for erratic mood swings and feelings of anxiety. Initially, I felt confused, scared, even angry. This sort of thing happens to other people, right? Why did it happen so quickly? Why were there no warning signs? Why didn't someone notice? Well, gradually the medication kicked in. I was obviously one of the lucky ones as I suffered little or no side effects from day one. And during my initial consultations, the psychologist carried out tests to determine the severity of my depression. She engaged me in conversations aimed at determining the triggers for my anxiety, finally recommending cognitive behaviour techniques involving communication, breathing and meditation strategies. I had to learn to really ease off on my traditional English stoicism to reassure myself that it was not unmanly or weak to let someone I trusted know that I was feeling slightly anxious or not coping with a certain situation. In short, I had to transition my stoic mindset to one of resilience, this all being part of the communication strategy. Breathing properly, well, that was my light bulb moment. I'm sure many of you are aware that we are habitually shallow breathers. We don't normally sit there breathing in deeply, holding for a count of 10, then exhaling slowly only to repeat for upwards of 20 breaths in and out. No, we just let our subconscious body control our breathing, shallow or otherwise. However, for someone with anxiety, a period of deep breathing in and out is an amazing tonic. As for meditation, well, I'm sure we're all aware of what that is. But from my perspective, it involved two activities of mindfulness, both requiring that I adopt my favourite position, lying flat on my back in bed. Now, the first activity was to shut my eyes and imagine I was in my favourite place, which for me was lying on a sandy beach with the sun warming my body and the sound of the waves gently lapping on the shore. I got really good at this exercise, very often dropping off. Now, the second activity, well, that took more effort, but was also very effective. The idea here was to lie on your back and focus on each individual extremity, be that your toes, ankles, knees, shoulders, etc. And while focused on that body part, to visualize it and to exercise it. Now, this one did take a while to perfect, but I got there and eventually completed a whole circuit of the body, including earlobes, well, I was able to visualise, if not exercise, and eyebrows. I quickly came to refer to these cognitive behavioural techniques or exercises as my coping strategies. And here I am some 17 years on from first putting into practice these basic but effective coping strategies, and they still form part of my daily regimen. Suffice to say, these days I continue to manage my mental health daily to ensure I stay well and continue to enjoy life as much as possible. 
Throughout the early weeks of my clinical diagnosis, my, my family and close friends were also learning from my journey, in turn taking a more proactive focus towards supporting me, as opposed to the initial very well-meant uh, compassion and sympathy. At my work, the Head of Human Resources assumed the role of company support liaison, allowing time for me to settle, then scheduling meetings at a cafe nearby simply to catch up. As time progressed, the conversation extended to my rehab back into my role. However, at all times, I was given the respect of this process, it being at my pace. Now, my story of experiencing a mental illness is not a unique one. One in five Australians will experience a mental illness in any given year, with 50% of Australians experiencing a mental illness at some point in their lifetime. Mental illness can happen to anyone. The challenge is that so many people do not reach out for support, ending up doing it very tough on their own, and tragically, people do die from mental illness. Suicide is the leading cause of death for people aged 15 to 44. However, suicide is preventable. These statistics tell us that mental illness is common and it's serious. That stigma and misunderstanding are still getting in the way of people talking about what is going on for them and reaching out for support when it's needed. So how come I didn't notice that anything was untoward with my mental health? Well, I simply didn't know what to look out for. My attitude was, this sort of thing happens to other people, right? I didn't realise that my increased anxiety related to that Monday morning feeling, or my reticence to socialise, my desire to spend a lot of time in bed, the increase in the chatter of the voice in my head, or my reduced level of excitement when about to attend a sporting event or concert, were all typical symptoms. In fact, neither I nor my family and friends were aware that these are all recognised indicators of anxiety and depression. Hence, I didn't seek help uh, until after I crashed rather spectacularly in 2004. So while my road to now has not always been an easy one, I am so very grateful that the experience of mental illness has taught me so much. For instance, I soon began to realise that mental health well-being is just as important as physical health well-being. Let's face it, when, when someone sneezes, everyone says, bless you. Then they keep an eye on you in case you develop the flu. However, anxiety is, for the most part, invisible. As such, no one says, bless you, and no one keeps an eye on you in case your anxiety develops into depression. Mental health well-being is all about self-awareness and trust. Know that you are sneezing inwardly, then have the trust in those around you to ensure that you take care of yourself so as to prevent the flu, being depression, from setting in. One of the best things I've gained from this experience is to better understand what it means to be mindful, to take time out each day to appreciate my surroundings, take note of my senses, understand my environment, think more about my family, friends and colleagues, and to enjoy every bit of life's experiences. So, there you have it, a potted history of my experiences with anxiety and depression to date. For me, a combination of medication and cognitive behaviour exercises have been key to being able to live my life to the full. Of course, it also helps to have a wonderful support network of family and friends 
combined with the emotional, almost cathartic experiences I receive from my daily involvement with the GHFC. Thank you so much for listening. Stay mentally well. Charles at the GHFC.